Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you? March already. I know. Where is this year going? I can't believe it. Although I am really happy that we're getting into spring, aren't you? Yeah, so good. January and February always pretty dark and dismal, aren't they? So let's hope that March is going to be warm, sunny, bright, lots of daffodils. Yeah, and of course for me it's a big month because it's the biggest holiday day of the year for persons. It's New Year on the spring equinox. So the preparations will be underway very soon for... You have to clean your house, don't I say that very quietly because, you know, I don't often get to it, but you're meant to clean all your cupboards and clean everything, take everything out, clean it all, put it back together. It's that kind of clean your windows, take down your curtains, do the whole thing in preparation for the 21st. I'm not inviting all of you who are listening out here to check whether I've done that, but I do try and like put things back where they're meant to be so that we can kind of start the year new. I feel like the first day of spring is a much better day to have a new year. What do you think as someone who's always had the first of January. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty dark and dismal in January. It doesn't often feel like, you know, you're opening up to a new year. So I, I'd definitely be happy to adopt the uh, springtime new year as a better option than, than January. Yeah, and you get sometimes get a thaw, you know, and you get kind of lighter where the light's getting better. And I don't know, it feels like, and you know, sometimes get things like daffodils and snowdrops and all those things have come through. So you're just starting to feel like, yep, it's starting. And then, of course, for us, we've got to do a big feast on the 21st, which I'm excited about. And in Iran, people will be giving presents. I will not be doing that in my house. I've not started that, but definitely a big feast, definitely kind of marking it with all the, the table filled with all sorts of little bits and pieces that represent what you want for the new year so that's to come but before that can't wait just a few days away is the start of stanza now i declare an interest in stanza i'm on the board of trustees for them but cannot wait to have a full-blown festival again this year i'm in terms of having audiences and people on stage and you know just really getting back into the swing of things it feels like for me march always becomes the month of poetry as well which is a real joy getting to see all those writers i've been reading and wanting to hear directly yeah and you can join us for open book well versed as part of stanza this year but you can also just join any of those sessions there's a shared reading every month and a creative writing session linking to one of the stanza well versed authors so come and join me if you fancy the, the sound of that and you'll find all the details of how to um, sign up for those sessions on our website but meanwhile this month march is uh the theme is practice and we've got a short story called practicing and a really lovely poem called i wanted music shall we crack into them already yeah why don't you start okay so this short story is written by priscilla thomas and it's called practicing the moment i began i knew i would never be good the violin's feedback was too immediate too abrasive i touched the bow to the strings and the screeching protest drilled through my jaw torturing my ears from the inside out. I wanted to drop the cursed thing, fling it away before it attacked. Even resting in the blue velveteen lining of its case, it unnerved me. The instrument was not unlike a wasp in the corner of my bedroom, with its gleam, its cinched waist, and the hum of menace it radiated. If you haven't practiced, we'll all be able to tell, Mrs. Mendel would say at orchestra every Tuesday and Thursday. 
She never looked directly at me, but my face twitched and burned. I kept my eyes on the shoulder of the student in front of me while I whispered my bow across the violin strings, imagining the breathy swishes of my pantomime were instead the delicate, ghostly tones I heard from the busker on the city street corner. I squeezed my bow like my father had gripped my hand, keeping me close behind him as we wound a path through the crowd with a plaintive melody threaded to my ear. But my own violin could only shriek and wail. I was eight years old, and I had wanted to do percussion, but there were only a few spots available, and they all went to boys. My parents wouldn't have allowed it, even if I could have gotten a drum position. They had two drummers in the family already and didn't need another headache. Some afternoons, my mother would meet me and my brother outside of school at the end of the day and walk us home. I always ran to her on light, skipping feet when I saw her standing across the black top with the other parents. I liked to collect evidence that she liked me. As we walked home and talked about our school days, the happiness wilted. Guiltily, I longed to be alone, walking a few feet behind my brother. He preferred me to be apart from him when we were outside without our parents. It suited me fine. I could look up at the trees or down at the cracks in the sidewalk and tell myself stories, imagine myself traveling through the woods to the ruins of a castle, the witch's hut. Anything I mentioned to my mother was met with an expectation. If I had enjoyed playing with chalk in the art class, she told me to practice it every day and become a prize-winning artist. When I tried to express the wonder I'd felt seeing a video of a concert pianist, she responded by signing me up for lessons and telling me I could be a world-famous piano player. I grew up without many Indian families around, Unlike my cousins who had enclaves of South Asian neighbors, corner stores that sold samosas and chickpea flour, and each other, my mostly white neighbors enrolled their children in activities, and while I was eager to participate in many of them, each came with its own pressure and stakes for me. Whether it was ballet or gymnastics, ceramics or the saxophone, success meant being the best. Anything else, the struggle of learning, The disappointment of failure, the buoyancy of fun, was a waste of my parents' time and money. My father wanted us to be good at everything too, but didn't have the patience for practice. Now, when I watch my friends and the way they encourage their kids to figure out their way through a problem or puzzle, I feel alien. There was a right way to do things in my house, and that was my father's way of doing them. We were expected to know the proper procedure immediately and interrupted away from any attempt to do otherwise. Mistakes under these rules were not allowed. Shall we stop there? Yeah. Gosh, there's a lot in that first section. I feel a bit guilty as a mother who kind of made her children practice instruments for quite a lot of their lives. But, you know, I I recognize that kind of feeling like, you know, if a child expresses an interest in something, you want them to do it. But I don't necessarily think that sort of pushing it to the, I want you to do it best and be a world-class fill-in-the-blank is a great thing for a child. And I was just going to say, I'm sure you didn't push your kids to practice with that in mind. You know, there's no point in paying for lessons if you're not going to practice in between. Yeah, and I guess having sat with them and supported them and through that, it doesn't 
it didn't feel as lonely as my practice time, which was like, away you go and practice and come back after 40 minutes. You know, I was much more involved in helping certainly an eight-year-old do bits and pieces, but my kids, most of them played something at the age of eight. And most of them still really like that. Don't necessarily play or practice very much, but like the ability to, to read music and sit down and do things. But I think there's something in it too about the learning or the lesson or the life skill, whatever you want to call it, of not being able to do something at the beginning of the week, spending a bit of time, even not every day, every other day, and by the end of the week, being able to do something that you can do. That thing goes beyond the actual learning of a musical instrument. Yeah, and I remember saying things like, go to sleep and by tomorrow your brain will have figured it out. I was always sure that your brain was sort of subconsciously working on things while you were asleep because it was remarkable, you know. You and I, when I tried to play the piano, and I, I did as a child and then tried a bit when I was as an adult, and I have yet to go back to it, but I'm determined to. You know, you couldn't do something you were really working at and couldn't do it. And then, of course, weirdly, in the next day you could. That's exactly what my children's piano teacher tells them to do to if there's a tricky bit to play it last thing at night get up and just spend two minutes trying it again in the morning and see how often you can do something in the morning that you couldn't do in the evening so there must be something in that idea that you've just talked about and for me the joy in that is it's completely the opposite of what's happening in this story which is you know I never wanted my children to be concert pianists or violinists or anything really it was just the pure joy at being good at something and kind of, or even making a noise that was enjoyable, you know, finding that you could pick something up and do something that you liked the sound of for the pure joy of it felt like completely the opposite of what was happening in school, which was, you know, you really needed to learn your math because you need them later in life. And, you know, all of that other work you do in school so often kind of building blocks to something bigger and part of a much bigger plan or growth plan or development plan or whatever. But music always felt like or, or dancing or ballet just like, felt like it was for joy you know just to prove that you could do something that you enjoyed and get better at it for your own enjoyment so in some ways it felt like the opposite of what's being described here which feels like whenever you're good at something you've got to do it to a certain standard and I, I remember as a kid thinking why why do I have to just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do it yeah but the whole concept and idea of joy seems completely missing from this child's life that final sentence in the paragraph, the struggle of learning, the disappointment of failure, the buoyancy of fun was a waste of my parents' time and money. It's such a sad little sentence. And when you read it with the, the previous sentence about her liking to collect evidence that her mother liked her, it just really gives a sense of just how little joy there seems to be in the life of this child. But then I do worry about the mum, you know, I think there is a kind of parenting where if you're not sure what to do, the only kind of rules you've got to go by is are your children doing well, you know, rather than what does good parenting look like? And that's just such a huge question we could talk about for days. And if you're not sure what that looks like, if you haven't had good role models or whatever, maybe good parenting just looks like your children being successful, however you define that. And therefore, rather than them being happy, I think that's quite a modern think or feel or say, you know, that you want, you just want your children to be happy. You know, my parents just wanted me to be successful. I'm sure somewhere in there, they would have said, of course, we want you to be happy, but we know that being happy involves being successful. <laughs> so, you know, for them, it was tied up. Whereas I think, you know, in the last sort of 20, 25 years, that's shifted and we're just much more interested in our children being themselves and being happy at doing whatever they're doing. I would say rather than successful, it's about having opportunities. 
So being happy when they don't want to do something that I want them to do or think they should be doing is that it's about giving yourself opportunities because if you get to pick and choose and you get to do the things that you want to do, your chances of being happy, I think, are higher. And in this world and the way it works, in order to have those opportunities open to you, you often have to be successful as however you would define that. And so for me, that's where the link is. The danger is you train your children that success means a certain thing or, yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I think for me, I spent so many years holding doors open just in case I might like to go through them. That in fact, I just, I was forever, and I think maybe it's cultural, but, you know, I was forever not wanting to close, burn any bridges, close any doors, but then you forever not thinking about what you'd like to do, you know, what actually makes you happy because you're so busy keeping every opportunity open. And maybe it's coming from an immigrant family, you know, where we had a particular kind of experience and a particular financial situation. And, you know, so for my family, happiness would probably have been security rather than anything else. So, you know, for them, seeing me in a role that was relatively well off, even if it meant I worked 27 hours a day was much better than seeing me teach or do something else I might have enjoyed more. Yeah, but I I see in the mum, I'm trying to give her a bit of credit. I wonder if she's quite lonely and struggling a bit with knowing what to do and, and with, you know, embracing a culture that she's unfamiliar with and knowing what the expectation is on her and her family because we know the child in the story grows up without Indian families around, unlike their cousins so it feels to me that's that's telling us about a bit about her, how her parents might feel as well yeah and of course that means that there isn't a whole community in which case you're more you're more pressurized to be superlative I think you know if you're within a community you can not be the best at everything but I think the danger is if you're you know one person in a different body or in a different community the pressure is on you feel like you're at the all eyes are on you so and I, I i recognize that idea that there's only one way to do things in a house but the, of course the danger there again is that you only get to decide how to do things when you leave home shall we read on yes come practice your violin my father would say ordering me to bring the treacherous thing down from my room so I couldn't pretend I had done more than glower at it while I skated resin over the horse hair of my bow, like sharpening a blade against a stone. After I ground out a few hesitant notes, he would hit the table in frustration. You are not practising, he shouted, and I scurried away, tucking the hateful violin against my side until we were safely back in my room and I could put some distance between us. Like my father, I had no patience for things I was not good at right away. I was terrified of anyone seeing that I was struggling with something. Mistakes and stumbles became unbearable, anxiety closing its fists around my lungs. I don't remember practising the things I liked. How many cartwheels into open air and breathless landings on the mat before my feet found the narrow beam? How many before I could do it without thinking? I learned to throw a six-foot flagpole and catch it with one outstretched hand to funnel my breath into a held note and stretch it further over my head or deeper under my feet. I can't count how many times I came to school early in seventh grade to try out for the solo in Seasons of Love. 
I sat on the steps outside the music room, waiting for Mr. Price to appear on the path from the faculty parking lot. He let me sing it over and over for weeks, and he never told me why I didn't get it. The singer who did hugged me when she found out. It should have been you, she said. My mother made sure I knew after every compliment I received that there were things someone says when they are trying to be nice, to keep you from being upset, or to get something from you. So I shook my head. No, no, you deserve it. And stopped trying out for solos. Shortly after I began seeing my now husband, we walked into a music store hidden near Times Square one of the relics of the area's theatre culture. The store and the emporium of sheet music that sent me into nostalgic delight are long gone now. But that afternoon, we wandered through the crowded shop, brushing careful fingers over the drumskins and weaving around the string instruments hanging from the ceiling like glittering chandeliers. We were looking for strings to replace on a guitar my husband had had since he was a teenager, a beloved thing gleaming in its own blue velvet case. I hadn't touched an instrument in decades. The violin and I had happily parted ways in the fourth grade. I told my husband about a fleeting desire to play the ukulele, dismissing it even as I spoke. It was something cute, quirky girls did in indie movies that I had love-hate relationships with, and my hands still tingled with shame from my teenage attempts at playing my brother's abandoned acoustic guitar. I spent hours of an afternoon trying to tune it, fussing with the pegs and doubting my ear each time I plucked a string. My husband reads people well. He knows when something is important to me. He snapped a photo of me that afternoon as I cradled a miniature banjo and studied the arrangement of my fingers against the fretboard, preparing to make a tentative strum. You could learn the ukulele, he told me. I still don't practice. Not the way my teachers told me to. But every now and then, I spend a quiet morning plucking out familiar melodies and strumming clumsily while I try to sing along. My husband wakes up and shuffles towards me with a smile. I asked him once, after one hundred mistakes and back to ones, if it was too much. No, he assured me. This is how it's done. You just keep trying. Okay, well, I just want to say, in Priscilla's defense, violins are so hard to learn, and they sound terrible for such a long time. And because I have three violin players, I had three violin players in the house, I still only have two. But there's about a year, I would say, of just torturous sound. You know, it's just so hard um, relative to in our house, the trumpet or the organ or the pianos, Clara sax. There's something about the violin 
it just sound it's so hard to make a good noise and then to tune it right you know you have to do two things at once which i think is just incredibly awful to get right and then something used to click about a year in maybe a year year and a half and suddenly it sounded nice to listen to but it was quite a long time of playing something no matter how determined you were that sounded pretty awful for a long time so i think it does require that instrument requires a kind of perseverance if you're a person who doesn't like not doing things well to begin with i can see that violin is the wrong thing to pick up. I think that's quite sad that section that we read where she explains she has no patience for things she was not good at right away and mistakes and stumbles became unbearable. That's quite a tough way to go through each day. And I wonder if that partly is just from coming from a family where you're not allowed to make mistakes. If it's just part of life in a house then maybe you know it's okay to be someone who's learning but I think the problem is if you've got parents who want you to be a concert violinist when you're eight you're going to find things really difficult be annoyed when things aren't perfect so I wonder too I actually wonder whether this is a person who has almost like great hearing or you know I, I we used to laugh I know you and I used to laugh for example when the children we had particularly fussy eaters and you know I think you told me once that you'd read somewhere that in fact it was children with incredibly sensitive palates that were the fussiest eaters and wanted the plainest food because everything tasted so strongly. And I sometimes wonder that about, you know, kids who can't cope with a violin. If they have incredibly, you know, I know my, one of my girls has incredibly sensitive hearing and it turns out is pitch perfect and things. So, you know, and now it's still probably the one who does most, the most music in the house, although she's being chased by her sister quickly. But I wonder whether it was really hard for her to hear sound that wasn't in tune you know, because she used to get really frustrated, not because of the mistakes, I think, but she just didn't like the sound. So I wonder if maybe it's it's that, whether the piano might have been easier, that it's easier to make a nice sound and then it's encouraging. I wonder if just not being good wasn't allowed, if mistakes weren't also. And it sounds like the father shouting is just underlining that idea. And then the solo, the singing day after day, auditioning for the solo and getting, it sounds like getting no feedback or no input and then just not getting it. Yeah, and then also being told by the mum that people only say nice things when they don't want you to feel bad. You know, and that's, that's incredible. I mean, I have to say, having tried to defend the mum in the first half, I'm, I'm sliding a little because I think that's, first of all, any child saying it should have been you to another child is, as far as I'm concerned, great behavior. Yeah. <laughs> um, you to know, be when, encouraged. Yeah. If you've got a house full of teenagers, you know, it's really kind for another young person to say, oh, you should have been you. But then, you know, to then think, oh, they're only saying that because it's not true, but because they want me to not feel bad. It's a terrible idea to plant in a child's head. Either, you know, because it isn't true or because, you know, it sort of somehow dismisses the kindness rather than thinking, oh, that person saw me as a good singer. It's terrible. But then, you know, that's maybe, maybe that's the turning point. Maybe that's the moment where you think I'm allowed to do things and work at them. And, and sometimes you don't get them. And maybe that's why later in life she's able to pick up a ukulele. Or maybe it's just the husband's encouragement to try and sort of slowly show her that you're allowed to not be perfect at things. I don't know. I like the husband. He seems to me a good guy. But yeah, that idea of being encouraged to do something just for the sheer enjoyment or because you want to do it rather than for having to have some measurable successful output at the end of it seems to be just transformational for her yeah and maybe you know maybe the joy in that relationship because it's more equal will be that he doesn't have as you say an output in mind but sees her kind of 
just interest for joy, back to joy, you know, and things. There's nothing has to come of this. You're just allowed to mess around with this for joy. And that's that feels like a real change or transformation, partly being seen uh, as much as just being thinking it's okay to pick up an instrument and, and make mistakes. And there's a strong sense of validation of her, going back to what you said about being seen but also being given permission to make her own decisions because it feels like in the earlier part of the story she very little control over anything in her life. Well, and the idea that you've got two drummers in the house, so you can't have a third is just ridiculous. Actually, you probably have all the drum kit you'd ever need. Whereas I, I do feel bad because one of my children wanted to play the drums and I said no. I just didn't think. I thought I might just be the last thing that sent me off, you know, into... After three violins. <laughs> yeah, into a meltdown. I just thought, I don't think I can cope with drums in the house. That said, one of the violinists wanted to play the cello and never lets me forget it. I just couldn't find her the cello teacher. And so in the end, I said, well, it's the violin or nothing. I, can't, I literally can't find someone to teach you. But still, you know, I'm sure at 35, I'll, she's only 16, but I can only imagine that at 35, she'll be saying, well, of course, I never really wanted to play the violin. Um, yeah. My but, mother made me. Yeah, <laughs> she'll write her own story, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, she's, she's, you know, she's done very well and it's absolutely fine. I think she probably secretly will think it's easier to pick up a violin and play a tune than it is a cello, but it's more portable for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think of all the, the years that she would have had to lug that cello into school on the bus. <laughs> Or the lifts that you would have had to give her. <laughs> or this week, you know, when her violin case breaks, it turns out she's got a sister with a violin case and she can borrow hers. There are pluses to playing the same instrument as your siblings, I guess. But yeah, I, I do. I feel for, I feel like maybe the, the end of this story, there's a sort of, not just a shift, but a recognition that you have to just keep trying at things and that's okay and there's no end goal in sight. It's that joy of doing, isn't it, rather than what it is you actually end up with. I don't know if there's something you've always wanted to try. I was thinking I'd love to try painting and I'm terrible at art. I mean, I'm just terrible. Nothing that I paint ever looks like it what it's supposed to or even what I had in mind. <laughs> but I kind of think, well, maybe that's not the point. Maybe the joy is to just force yourself to sit and do something, you know, actually just look hard at something. And the thing is as well, nobody knows what you've got in mind. Could be exactly <laughs> what you put in the paper. <laughs> Yeah, well, I remember an artist friend telling me, well, it's fine. We all see things differently. And I thought, yeah, but I'm not painting what I see either. <laughs> um, and she said, it's, you know, nobody can draw a perfect circle. You know, she's trying to make me feel better. But the truth is, I think I've got to decide. And maybe that's what's happening in the story, that what the joy is in the act rather than in the product, rather than being good at something. Actually, it's a bit like um, running for the pleasure of running, which I know very well, rather than, you know, I'm not running to get fit or lose weight or anything else. It's actually the pleasure of the thing itself. Shall we move to the poem? Yeah, this is a poem by Sarah Rule who has very kindly allowed us to use it. Um, I saw it somewhere, I think, and said, that's the poem we need with this story, but let's decide whether we think that's right. It's called I Wanted Music. I wanted music, yes, but I also wanted the music of everyday things, a plate, an arm, some dirt, a chair, how a plant is related to a window, how a window is related to a chair small words with purpose, correspondences of everyday things, the music of combustible objects, one day ending, not tracking for posterity, but loosening like a fig. 
It's almost the opposite of practice, isn't it? Mm, I was just going to say it's it's the it's the flip side mirror image, isn't it? The the making music or the appreciation of music that's out there without the need to create it or make it or do something in particular to find it. I guess it's finding music in the everyday, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess partly why I thought it would go well is is it's about that kind of the joy of the process rather than it's not saying I want to garden so I get a, fl- a flower or but it's actually just stopping and recognizing that sort of moment by moment and that that is it's a, itself a kind of music you know how things are related to each other how they sit how the light falls you know poetry so often I think is concerned with the relationship of things to each other and to us and the joy in those created in those proximities somehow and that kind of everyday thing and the noticing you know that sometimes I think the act of writing a poem or reading a poem is the fact that it brings your focus and your attention to something small that you might not otherwise have noticed and then the next time you see that something small you notice it for yourself and and experience it in a different way but that path has been mapped out for you by the poem. Yeah, exactly. And so often they are a metaphor for something bigger anyway, but I'm not always sure that the writer knows that when they're writing about it. So, which I think is is the beauty of it because then if their subconscious is at work somewhat in some ways, probably the readers is too. But as you say, it's something about the noticing of it, something about the slowness of this. Just like we what we were just talking about in the story, that kind of joy of the doing, the joy of the practicing, the joy doing something for joy rather than for a result. And you know, the end of this poem feels like that. You know, the music of combustible objects one day ending and not tracking it for posterity. It's like, you know, no, actually this is just that's it. It made me think that it was the opposite of Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In in the modern day world, trying to catalog our days in rather than just being really in them, and it feels like that's exactly what the the person in the story is missing. And then when you know when she gets her ukulele, that is, it does feel like that's what she's doing. She's not tracking it, or she's not making it better. Just doing the music of every day, not becoming a. What can you become a concert ukuleleist? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't know, but I doubt it. But just for the joy of it, which seems. And for yourself. I mean, there's something about all the things that her mother wanted her to succeed at, being a prize winning artist, a concert pianist, which was, you know, for the benefit of other people or for sharing with other people. Whereas the ukulele playing feels very much a gift she's giving herself. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. And I, and I love this poem. So thank you, Sarah, for allowing us to use it and pair it with this gorgeous story by Priscilla Thomas. Thank you to you both. I think that's all for us today. Thank you again for having us in your ears. And we really look forward to being back with you next month where we'll have a new story and a new poem and look forward to hearing of your visits and interactions at Stanza. Hope you manage to get along to something. <laughs> <laughs>